This is Mental Health and You with WCPA. We're your hosts, Taylor Kennedy, Caitlin Schaefer, and Jacqueline Simplecamp. Our podcast covers mental health topics for you. From us, licensed mental health professionals. Let's get to this week's episode. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Mental Health and You. Today, we've got a great episode in store. We're interviewing our colleague, Amy Moss. Amy, we are so excited to have you, and thank you so much for making time in your busy schedule to meet with us. We are going to be talking about preventing youth suicide. So suicide in general is obviously a very sensitive topic for humanity, and we encourage everyone listening, you know, to take care of yourselves as needed as you hear some of these conversations. Yeah, so we all agree that this topic is really important, and even though... It's difficult. We do want to have these conversations. So Amy, if you wouldn't mind, would you share a little about yourself and what your role is like at WCPA? Sure. So um, I am a a licensed clinical social worker and I've been in private practice with West County Psychological for over 20 years. I do a lot of school consultation work. So just like most of you all do a lot of therapy work, I do a lot of school consultation work where I'm helping schools as their school counselor. I'm leading care teams. I'm doing trainings. I'm doing parent night speaking. uh, And then I do some psychological testing and administrative work in the office as well. So that's me. Busy lady. You are all over the place. I feel like in the community and like schools and teachers and educators, parents. I love working with schools. So I'm glad to be out there. I think it's really cool for our listeners to hear that if you're a social worker or a therapist or a counselor, whatever, you can do other work alongside therapy or other than therapy. So I think you just add a lot to our office and we really appreciate all the work that you do. Thanks. Thanks so much. A large part of our podcast is talking about why we're passionate about mental health in general. So we would like to know, you know, why are you passionate about mental health? You know, obviously I've seen in my own life um, and in my own family and my own friends, sort of the the difference that mental health can make. I've seen how the right support or the right therapist or medication can sort of make all the difference in the world for a person and for their family. And so, um, and I think that many people have seen that in their own families and their own friends. And, and working in schools, I see the difference that can be made by access to qualified mental health services as well. Those access to resources, I feel like it's huge. I think that's a really good point. And you really did just speak to like why we're passionate as well and kind of what we talk about a lot in our episodes. So kind of getting to our topic for today, in your opinion, do you think that suicide is an uncomfortable or taboo topic societally? Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a couple of really good reasons for that. So even the term, you know, committed suicide is a holdover from a time when suicide was a crime. You committed suicide the way you committed armed robbery. And and we also know that many religions down through history have um, approached suicide as an issue of sin rather than an issue of mental health. So it makes sense that the topic would be taboo. If something is a sin, if something is a crime, then who would want to talk about their thoughts and experiences with it, right? And, And this taboo has a major impact with youth suicide prevention because The biggest myth about youth suicide prevention is that if you ask a child or you ask a teen if they're thinking about suicide, then you're going to plant that idea in their mind. And so people hesitate sometimes to ask kids if they're thinking about suicide. But there's actually been research that shows that when individuals are asked about their thoughts of suicide, even multiple times a day, some research has done, you know, five, six times a day, people have been asked about their thoughts of suicide, that that doesn't increase their suicidal thoughts or behaviors. So whether we're therapists or parents or coaches or other caring adults, 
we need to get over this taboo about talking about suicide. And we need to ask the question if we have concerns about a kid. I think that's a really good point. It's our job as adults to ask that question and facilitate that communication. It has to stem from us so that they learn. It's not taboo to talk about and it's important to do so. I find it really fascinating the study you just talked about. I didn't know that there was so much research into planting that seed like you just spoke of. That's actually really fascinating. And I think it's kind of cool for our listeners to hear that. And it's important for us as therapists to know that too, that we can feel really comfortable always asking our clients that question, are you having thoughts of suicide? We're not going to plant that idea or that behavior in their mind. Amy, I like how you said that though. You know, we need to be very direct when we're asking the kiddos too about these thoughts. And a lot of times we aren't because we're afraid. It's uncomfortable. It's yeah, it's a hard question to ask. And I think that the younger that a child is, the harder it is to ask. Um, It's hard to ask that question of an eight-year-old or a Mm 10-year-old. Yeah. And you don't want to scare them or you don't, like you said, you want to plant seed or scare them or like, oh gosh, is that taking it too far? But Caitlin, like you just honed in on that specific, very direct way of talking about it is necessary. Yeah. And like Amy said, now research has shown that it's not the case that we're planting a seed and that that will, you know, cause them to have additional thoughts. So we can't really be talking about it too much. And if anything, I think it's just going to shed light on the issue and then help give that child support. So Amy, earlier you mentioned a lot of like key adults in a child's life. So could you explain why it's so important to educate parents, teachers, coaches, et cetera, about youth suicide in general? So again, here we have to talk about myths. Because when people believe myths about suicide, then they're unlikely to intervene with a child who needs help and they're unlikely to intervene effectively. So they need education in order to know what to look for and what to say to a child who's at risk. But most adults have never had that sort of education before. Right. So they say inappropriate things sometimes that aren't helpful, like, you know, you would never do that or you don't really mean that, do you? Or, oh, that would hurt your mom if you did that, that sort of thing, which is not helpful. Right. And the adults who do have this training, like counselors and doctors, well, we aren't the adults who have the most daily contact with all kids on a regular basis. Most kids don't have daily contact with a counselor, a social worker, a medical professional. So the adults that see them the most, their parents, their teachers, coaches, youth group leaders at church, scout leaders, they need what we call gatekeeper training, which teaches about the risk factors, warning signs, the basic prevention methods of youth suicide. So they know what to ask and they know what to say when those topics come up. So where does this gatekeeper training exist? Is that something that, you know, you get from a lot, like you do it, right? I know you offer these Mm -hmm. services and stuff. But is it like a requirement for teachers or does like a school district have to offer it or like a coach? How does this happen? Well, we're located in the state of Missouri, but a lot of states have the requirement for school district personnel to get training every year. So in the state of Missouri, all school district staff, whether you're a teacher, a secretary, a bus driver, everybody has to have some yearly training on suicide awareness and prevention, which is terrific. And more states are getting that sort of requirement. That's awesome. Because I know like we do, like we have CEUs for suicide and that kind of stuff as mental health professionals, but I didn't realize that it was mandated in other professions as well. I was hoping so though. I know me neither. I'm so glad that it is. Obviously gatekeeper training is something that can kind of reduce a barrier, I feel like, to these conversations. But what barriers do you think exist in preventing youth suicide? 
A couple come to mind immediately. The first is just the stigma, again, of talking about it. And so, you know, one of the most basic interventions for suicidal youth, and we call it tier one because it can help everyone, is to reduce the stigma around mental health and to increase help-seeking behaviors. You know, for kids to know when and how to access help for themselves or a friend during suicidal thoughts, this is one of the things that we do when we teach kids, whether that's in school or in a church youth group or a community center. We teach them how do they realize when they need help, when a friend needs help, and what do they do and what resources are available to them. So when we reduce that stigma and teach kids how to ask for help, that's one of the barriers that can be impacted. And then we also know there's a barrier to accessing resources. One of the most affluent, well-resourced public school districts in our area recently had students come forward and say that they need more resources for mental health and suicide prevention. So what does that probably say then again about uh, districts that are less well-resourced, that have fewer financial resources? So kids are realizing that they need more resources. Kids are realizing that there aren't enough services available to them. And we know that the access to therapy, a lot of times has to do with access to health insurance and access right. to financial resources. So sometimes the families that need therapy services the most are the ones who have the most difficulty accessing it financially. Is, and I feel like, isn't that oftentimes the case? Those who need it the most have the most barriers against them, stacked against them. And it can be extremely challenging for a child, especially because they don't get to control anything with finances or insurance. So they can't really get themselves help in that area. So I find it extremely impressive that these students that you spoke of were the ones advocating for themselves at their schools that they needed more support. And then I love, love, love what you said about breaking stigma because y'all, that's a huge part of this podcast. So that kind of fits perfectly in what Caitlin, Jacqueline, and I have really been working towards is reducing stigma about mental health and that just goes hand in hand with you suicide, it sounds like. So that's perfect. And I think we can loop this all back around to that conversation a few minutes ago about how it can be uncomfortable. But when we hear that children are coming forward to talk about this at school with their peers, with other adults, as the adults, we also need to be comfortable talking about it because they are already talking about it. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that's a really important thing to note here. Yeah, like they're noticing it and they're noticing it amongst their peers. Mm-hmm. And so then they're, act, you know, actively seeking help and support from trusted adults. And it's our job to be there. But a lot of times I think they're not, they're not always asking for help from yeah. trusted adults. They're talking about it amongst mm-hmm. themselves, which isn't point. always helpful. If kids, if kids have, have gotten training, there's actually been some research that shows that when youth get training, they're far more likely to tell an adult when, when things like this happen in their peer group. And when they've had no training about it, they're, they're far more likely to keep it to themselves. You know, kids do talk about their self-harm, their sexual behavior, their eating disorder issues, their, you know, substance use. Of course they talk about those things together. And if they've had training, we know that they're far more likely to find that parent, find that teacher, find that school counselor and report when something is really unsafe. So we have to be brave enough to let kids learn about the topic. Mm -hmm. That's a really good point. It's a good point. Yeah. Those kiddos probably had some form of training or support to know mm-hmm. how to go ask. For Absolutely. It's a good point. And they obviously feel safe enough to start a conversation with an adult too. And so, you know, as adults in their life, providing that openness for that communication is important. 
I know. I really admire that. Like it can't be easy to do. And I think it's really cool that they're advocating for themselves saying like, hey, like we're not getting the support we need. What can we do about this? So Amy, I'm wondering before I ask you this question, could you explain the difference to our listeners between what a warning sign is and what a risk factor is in relation to suicide? Sure. So, you know, probably the easiest way to think about it and the example that I always give is what are the differences between the risk factors and warning signs for a heart attack? Right. So when you think about the risk factors for a heart attack, we think about things like um, obesity, smoking, family history, sedentary lifestyle. But when we think about the warning signs for a heart attack, well, that's uh, chest pain, pain down one arm, pain in the back, difficulty breathing, shortness of breath. Right. Right. So you can see there there's the risk factors that make it more likely that you might experience Mm -hmm. a heart attack. But then there's the warning signs that suggests that you are having a heart attack right now. So that's the difference. So when we think about risk factors and warning signs for youth suicide, the risk factors are the things that make it more likely that that person may experience suicidal thoughts or behaviors, but the warning signs are telling us that that child is at risk right now. That's a really good way of explaining it. So yeah, I really like how you explain the difference between the two, because I think it can be a little confusing. So we definitely appreciate that example of using like heart disease. Then for suicide, what would be some examples of risk factors? So when we think about the factors that contribute to youth suicide, I always like to start by making sure that people understand that the depths of the numbers of youth suicide today. So right now, suicide is the second leading cause of death in individuals of middle school, high school, and college age in this country, exceeded only by accidents accidental death, right? So suicide causes the deaths of more 10 to 24 year olds in our country than all natural causes combined. And males complete suicide three to four times more often than females, but females attempt suicide two to three times more often than males. The thing that makes that uh, those numbers work, unfortunately, are, are gender differences primarily due to lethality of the method that's used. So males in our country, think about it. When males complete suicide in our country, they're more often to use firearms. They're more often to use hanging. Females more often use pills and overdose. They more often use cutting, right? So when somebody uses a firearm in a suicide attempt, death results 85 or 90% of the time. Firearms are very, very deadly. And that's what males are using. When someone uses an overdose, in a suicide attempt, death results 2% of the time. Most people don't realize it's that low, but 2% of the time. And so we have females attempting far more often and males completing or dying by suicide far more often. So one of the major risk factors, and this is not only for adolescents and youth, but also for adults as well, is simply gender. We look at who dies in this country by suicide, men. Men die in this country by suicide far more often. The number one risk factor for adolescent suicide is access to firearms, to loaded firearms. So because we know that our boys and our men often die by by firearm, we know that when we uh, make sure that youth don't have access to loaded firearms, you know, unsupervised access to loaded firearms, that that's probably the number one thing that we can keep them do to keep them safe. Kids who have access unsupervised to loaded firearms are far more likely to die in our country by suicide than kids who don't. So there's our number one risk factor as well. And I always tell folks, this has nothing to do with 
you know, hunting together as a family or sport shooting together as a family. I, I live in the country. We own firearms, but my my 18 year old does not have access to them. Right. So we have to think about uh, gender as a risk factor. We think about access to firearms as a risk factor. Previous suicide attempts is a risk factor, right? The best predictor of future suicide attempts are previous suicide attempts. Yeah. Mental illness, uh, depression and anxiety, substance abuse, kids who use drugs and alcohol, kids who are hopeless, who say, think, you know, things will never get better. What's the use? Nothing I do ever works. Sexual and gender identity, believe it or not, kids who are LGBTQ, who identify as LGBTQ are far more likely to attempt suicide and to die by suicide. So we know that about four times as often a kid who is identifying as LGBTQ will attempt suicide than a a child who identifies as straight and cisgender. So we've got a lot of different risk factors that I think are worth knowing for your listeners out there. I do agree. And I think that here, just hearing the difference between even males and females, I think is shocking. And then also adding in the LGBTQ community too. I think it's really good stuff for everyone to know, really. Absolutely. So then when like a youth or a teen is suicidal, what kind of warning signs can we all look out for? So the the number one warning sign is the obvious. Uh, It's threatening suicide, talking about suicide, posting about suicide, putting things online about suicide. But a lot of us believe, again, in this myth that if a kid is talking about suicide, that they just are wanting attention and nothing could be further from the truth. We know that when they go back and they look at um, youth who die by suicide, that 80% of them told someone their intentions in the week or two prior to their death. And so when kids are talking about suicide, posting about suicide, um, texting about it with their friends or putting it online, uh, looking up suicide methods online or joining suicide groups online, that sort of thing, when they're making those sort of statements, that's when we need to be concerned because that's the cry for help that says, I'm really, really at risk right now. And we have to make sure that as adults, as parents, as teachers, as coaches, as as therapists, that we never assume, ah, well, a child who's doing a lot of those sort of things must just be wanting attention. Right. Or they're, they're joking about it. They aren't serious, that kind of stuff. And even if they're comfortable making light of it, it's still a warning sign. Like, Hey, this behavior, you know, it's a cry for help and it's, I need you to notice that it's not probably the best way to handle maybe these thoughts or feelings, but they're a child and it's maybe the only way they know how. You're absolutely right. Even joking about suicide, if they do it on a regular basis, that can absolutely be a warning sign. I have a lot of clients that tell me that they do that. They're like, oh, my friends and I would joke about it. Or my mom, does she does I'm joking. And I'm like, interested at how much the youth does that. But I think it's a coping. It's a way of coping. And, you know, we don't talk about it a lot. So how are we expecting them to know how to talk about it in a different fashion? Well, that's what we teach people to do in our culture, to make jokes about things that make you uncomfortable or about feelings that are real for you. Think about that person who's heavy that constantly sort of makes jokes about their own weight. Think about that person who's self-conscious about their looks, who constantly makes jokes about uh, their looks or um, somebody who doesn't have a lot financially, who sort of makes jokes about their their little house, that sort of thing. So this is what we teach people to do in our culture about thoughts and feelings that make them uncomfortable, even if they're really real for them. Amy, that's such a good point. It is. Oh my gosh. It's a great comparison. Amy, what do you think about the kiddos who maybe aren't using the term suicide? But what if they're saying things like, I just don't want to be here anymore? 
or this world, this house would just be so much better if I wasn't here. Because I think that's something that parents share with me as a therapist that they hear their kids say, but that's maybe a little more in the gray area for them. I would say that those are, are warning signs because youth very rarely come out and say, I'm going to try to attempt suicide, right? Those are not the right. words that kids tend right. to use. They tend to use the words that you're using. Mm-hmm. So we as the adults can put that back into the terms of, are you thinking about suicide? Are you thinking about ending your life? Yeah. But kids are far more likely to say something like, why even try anymore? Nothing ever works. I just wish I could go to sleep and not wake up. I wish I had never been born. I'm such a burden to my family. My friends would be better off without me. And when you hear those sort of hopeless statements, even if the word suicide or or dying or killing myself is never a part of the statements, they're absolutely still those hopeless warning signs um, that need to make us perk up our ears and ask the right questions. Right. We need to ask. We can't be afraid to do that. And you're right. We can't be afraid to use the word suicide explicitly. So that's one thing we can do. What other tools can we give our listeners to help someone experiencing suicidal ideation? So I I always recommend, you know, whether I'm talking to trained counselors or whether I'm talking to parents or teachers, that we really have two main goals when we're talking to a youth and we're starting to be concerned that they really are thinking about suicide. The first goal is that we need to express our care for that person. Uh, And that comes first, of course, to say, I'm so sorry you're feeling this way. I care so much about you. I wish that you were feeling better. I wish we could uh, help you to feel better so that they understand that you're deeply caring of them and that you're a resource for them and that that you want them to feel better. The second thing that we have to do is make sure that we're helping them to access resources. So we we can't keep this information to ourselves. No matter what our role is with this child, we need to make sure that we're not keeping the realization that they may be at risk for suicide to ourselves. So if we're their therapist, we have to be notifying their parent, right? If we're the parent, then we need to be accessing professional resources. If we're the school, if we're the teacher or the coach per se, right, then we have to be notifying the family and then we need to be helping the family to access resources. So we're never keeping this information solely to ourselves. Uh, And I always recommend if people aren't sure who to tell, if they aren't sure sort of who to notify or what to do, there's a couple of terrific national resources that they can use. So there's the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline number, which is 1-800-273-TALK, 273-8255. And then there is the National um, Crisis Text Line, which is 741-741. Okay, ladies, have you memorized that one yet? Be honest. The text one I have. The text one? (laughs) Mm-hmm. That's yeah, what I feel like I one. give to my high schoolers more. Yeah. I thought I did, but then you said it. I almost had it, but not quite. So thank you again, Amy. <laughs> okay, 741741. I, I tell everybody, know that number. Put it in your phone. Be ready to share. And you can share it with your kids who aren't at all at risk for suicide because they can share it with a friend in a time of emergency, right? So 741741, that's our national crisis line number. And so those are some great resources to use if you just aren't sure what to do about what a child has told you. 741741. That's right in my head. Always keeping me on my toes. So one thing I'm hearing you say is sharing resources. And I think that can just help people in general get comfortable talking about suicide. Because if you're giving out a resource, you're going to say what it's for and why it would be helpful. So then how as a society can we get more comfortable just talking about suicide in general? 
Well, we get more comfortable with things that we do regularly, right? If you are, if you are uncomfortable driving a car, the more you drive your car, the more comfortable you're going to get doing so. If you're uncomfortable flying, same thing. So if your school or your, if your community has a suicide prevention day or week, participate in some of those activities, right? Go to some of the speakers, take some of the flyers or the material. If they don't, then talk with your leaders about what activities could be planned. Um, having programs like this helps, right? Your, your podcast, this is your, one of your goals is to eliminate stigma and to talk about the topics that are hard to talk about for families and for, for individuals. So having programs, having things in the community, having podcasts like this, the more that we experience the topic and have time to talk about it and discuss together, the less of the stigma that there's going to be, the more we bring the conversation into our schools, into our workplaces, our churches, our communities. Think about, you know, if your church or if your place of work or if you're your university or your local YMCA or your mom's group, you know, have you ever had a suicide prevention speaker? Do you put the lifeline number? Do you put the crisis text line number on the back of the bathroom stalls, right? At your school or at your YMCA, on your website homepage, do you have suicide prevention resources listed, you know, um, in big, easy letters that people can see when they go to your website homepage? So there's more ways to just bring it into day-to-day life so that people see those resources. They see the, the topic being discussed they see that there are, you know, things in the community that they can access if they have concerns about themselves or a friend or a family member. Yeah. Just normalizing. Exactly. Yeah. And I think attending these programs or these trainings are super important because they give you the language to use, right? I know Amy, in your presentations, you can give examples and give some ideas of ways to communicate with Um, kiddos and it just makes it easier if it is uncomfortable or you're not sure exactly how to say it. That's a good point. If you haven't been trained, who would, who would know such a thing? Yeah, exactly. Maybe the wisest person ever, but most of (laughs) them have never been trained. We don't know what to say. It was really sticky, difficult situations. Yeah. You just have to gain information so that you do and you feel more equipped. Absolutely. And and again, it's not just about formalized training. It can be as simple again as that sign on the back of the bathroom, Mm -hmm. or it can be something about, you know, your youth leader sending out a a blast to the youth group about a resource that they've found. It can be, you know, a, a therapist telling a family about some resources that they could look into. So lots of ways to share and discuss. Well, Amy, thank you so much for coming on today and joining us. This conversation was definitely needed. And I think this episode as a whole can really benefit our listeners. So I just really appreciate all of the knowledge and insight that you provided into youth suicide and how we can kind of work as a society towards prevention. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad to be able to come on and talk about it. So this has been great. I know this was even helpful for us too. So we really do appreciate it. Yes. 741741, guys. I was just going <laughs> to say that. 741741. So then looking into next week, we've got another good topic coming up. We'll be talking about how dating has changed during the pandemic. I really like how we can talk about such a wide variety of topics on here. Yeah. We are definitely looking forward to discussing that next week. And again, Amy, thank you so much for being with us. We hope our listeners have really learned some great tools from our talk today. If you guys have any questions or comments about this week's episode, please DM us on Instagram at mental health in you. Yes, please do reach out, get in contact with us. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see you next week.